0: This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. If there is one thing that's pretty much universal, it's that we all wonder what it would like to be rich. Who wouldn't want to wake up one morning, be able to quit their job, and spend the rest of their lives in the lap of luxury? The problem is, short of starting the next Amazon or Google, the best shot most of us have of becoming rich is hitting the lottery, but the chances of that happening are slim at best. Practically every time there's a massive unclaimed jackpot, you'll hear in the news how the odds of winning are roughly equivalent to that of being eaten by a great white shark right before getting struck by lightning on the way to purchase the lottery ticket. On average, Americans spend about $223 annually on lottery tickets. That equals out to more than $74 billion spent each year on a chance to end up on Easy Street. And despite the impossibly long odds of winning, occasionally, some people do strike it rich. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean their lives turn out better afterwards. You can often find plenty of stories in the news of how those same winners managed to lose all that money within a few years and ended up suffering a life of constant tragedy from then on. Divorces, alcoholism, drug addiction, and even friends and family literally out to murder the winner for their money. These are all things many former lottery winners have reported. After all, there is a good reason there's a TV show called The Lottery Ruined My Life. Yet despite all the potential negative consequences, people keep playing the lottery for that chance they might win. The earliest known lottery dates back to the Chinese Han Dynasty between 205 and 187 B.C., It's believed that the revenues collected by the Han government from their lottery helped build the Great Wall of China. A major reason many governments hold lotteries is because it's an easy way to collect money for costly projects, where they don't necessarily want to impose unpopular new taxes on their subjects. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar, a lottery was organized to fund repairs to the crumbling capital infrastructure. In Europe around the 15th century, several defenseless towns held lotteries in order to build up their fortifications against aggressors. In Italy in 1449, a lottery was held in the city of Milan in order to raise money to finance a war against the Republic of Venice. In 1566, the first lottery was organized in England, under the charter of Queen Elizabeth I. This was ostensibly done under the guise of strengthening the realm, In 1612, another English lottery was organized by King James I that allowed the Virginia Company of London to raise money to help settlers establish the first English colony in Jamestown, Virginia. And after that, lotteries would continue to be used to help build the future United States. During the French and Indian Wars, several colonies used lotteries to finance local militias. None other than Benjamin Franklin organized a lottery at the outset of the Revolutionary War to finance defenses in Philadelphia. Legendary Broadway star Alexander Hamilton became a big proponent of lotteries as a means of keeping cash flowing into the coffers to support the colonial army. Throughout the early 20th century, lotteries mostly fell out of favor in the United States. That is, until they began to see a resurgence in the 1950s and 60s, purportedly as a way to help fund local school districts. Although it's a commonly held belief that state lotteries are huge funders of local schools, the truth of the matter is a lot more complicated than that. By the time you subtract out the cost of paying the winners and factoring in the cost of actually running the lottery, only about one-third of the funds collected actually go towards education. And of that money, you have to use the words towards education loosely. A substantial amount of the money collected by state and local governments in the lottery meant for schools actually gets pinched off by the state to cover all sorts of other bills, including attorney's fees for construction projects, consultants' fees, road construction, and other items that are only loosely related to education. Today in the U.S., lotteries are operated at the state level across 44 states and three territories. Most of these states also take part in multi-jurisdictional group lotteries that have even bigger payouts, but much longer odds. In a typical statewide lottery in which you draw six numbers out of 49 possibilities, the odds stand at around 1 in 14 million of drawing all six numbers. In the Mega Millions Multi-State Lottery, the odds of drawing all six numbers skyrockets to 1 in 258 million. Those are certainly some very long odds. But what if I told you there have been times where a few cunning individuals have managed to do the unthinkable and beat those odds? No, I'm not talking about random chance but rather, individuals who have managed to beat the lottery at their own game, either by cheating or simply outthinking the lottery commission. When you hear some of these stories, you'll come to realize although you might have thought you had a chance of winning the lottery one day, no matter how small, the truth is, you never really had a chance at all. I'm Nate Hale, and my lucky rabbit's foot is actually a monkey's paw, and this is The Conspirators. On the night of April 24, 1980, more than 6 million Pennsylvania viewers tuned in to watch the live lottery drawing in the hope that their three-digit winning numbers would be called. The jackpot that night was up to $3.5 million. The way the Pennsylvania lottery worked was they used a machine that spat out numbered ping-pong balls to select the winning digits. That night, the host, Nick Perry, stepped up to the podium and ordered the machine be activated to draw the numbers. The balls danced around inside the clear plastic box and one by one they began to drop into the chutes. The first number was a six, then the second ball dropped, and it was another six. Then the third ball dropped, and that one was a six as well. Now the most religious audience members probably read something sinister in the winning numbers that evening turning out to be 666, the legendary number of the beast. Strangely enough, though, there really was something very wrong with those numbers. But it had very little to do with the devil, and had a lot more to do with good old-fashioned human greed. Right away, alarm bells went off with lottery authorities and local bookmakers, when they realized eight people came forward to claim the bulk of the prize money. Lottery officials began an investigation and soon realized that a small handful of people somehow managed to buy up thousands of tickets that contained all the possible winning combinations. Eventually, the scheme would unravel when the machine was inspected and it was discovered that some of the allegedly random ping-pong balls that had been used had been substituted with weighted balls that were guaranteed to drop in the winning slots. This reduced the number of winning combinations from millions down to just a few hundred. It wouldn't take long before the lottery officials determined that there were only a specific handful of insiders who could have pulled off such a switch. One of those was none other than the lottery show's host, Nick Perry. The well-known broadcaster and former host of Bowling for Dollars hatched the scheme along with lottery official Edward Plevel, one of only two people who had keys to the locked room where the ping-pong balls were kept. Once the pair managed to swap out the balls with their own weighted counterfeits, they handed off lists of all potential winning combinations to a few co-conspirators, went out buying up every possible winning ticket. Charges would be leveled against seven men. Plevel was convicted and spent two years in prison. Perry was convicted of criminal conspiracy, theft by deception, and a number of other related charges. For that, he received seven years behind bars although he served only two of them before being released. He spent the rest of his life professing his innocence. Following the Pennsylvania lottery scandal, the system was changed and they stopped using ping-pong balls to draw the numbers. But with so much money on the line in the lottery, there have continued to be people on the inside trying to find ways to cheat. On December 23, 2010, a man walked into a Des Moines, Iowa quick-trip convenience store just off Interstate 80. He was wearing a black hoodie sweatshirt pulled tight around his chin and a black baseball cap under that, both of which made it difficult to see his face in surveillance footage. Before stepping up to the cashier, the man grabbed a soft drink and two hot dogs. The cashier greeted him brightly, and the man replied with only a few words, but those words were audible enough on the tape that you can clearly make out his heavy western drawl. The stranger pulled out two sheets of paper, They were play slips packed full of numbers for the multi-state hot lotto. The prize for getting five numbers right was $10,000. The prize for getting all six numbers right was nearly $20 million. At the time the man's tickets were being printed, the odds of winning the hot lotto stood at around 1 in 11 million. Six days later, the winning numbers were drawn. 3, 12, 16, 26, 33, and 11. The following day, the Iowa Lottery announced that the Quick Trip convenience store was the location where the winning ticket was purchased. And yet, despite the public announcement, no one came forward to claim the big prize. Not for almost exactly one full year. Then on November 9, 2011, a lawyer from Quebec, Canada named Philip Johnston called the Iowa Lottery claiming to have purchased the winning ticket. But when Johnston was asked to describe himself and what he was wearing when he purchased the ticket, he said he was a man in his 60s who had worn a sports coat and gray flannel dress pants that day at the quick trip. When the lottery told him this was incorrect, Johnston was forced to admit he lied and was actually helping a client claim the ticket anonymously. But doing this was against Iowa lottery rules, which require the lottery winner's name become public. When Johnston learned this news, he suggested that he may be forced to withdraw his claim. This baffled investigators, since it meant the winner would be giving up $16.5 million. Then, just two hours before the one-year deadline would have been reached and the ticket would have become worthless, a prominent Des Moines law firm contacted the Iowa Lottery's headquarters, informing them they were claiming the winning prize on behalf of a trust. Iowa lottery officials were well aware of how suspicious this all looked, and soon the case was turned over to the Iowa Attorney General, who opened a criminal investigation. This investigation would drag on for the next few years, but it remained mostly at a standstill since the investigators still hadn't been able to determine the identity of who it was that purchased the ticket. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation finally released a 74-second clip from the quick-trip surveillance cameras to the public. This was the one in which the man's voice was clearly audible. It wasn't long after that in which employees of both the Maine and Iowa lotteries began contacting Iowa State investigators to report that they recognized the man's voice. They all pointed toward a man named Eddie Tipton, who just so happened to be the information security director for the Multi-State Lottery Association. People who knew Eddie personally couldn't believe it. He was a quiet, well-respected man, the last person anyone would suspect of committing a massive fraud. And yet, several people who viewed the video and listened closely recognized Eddie's distinctive Texan drawl. Since Tipton was in charge of lottery security, that meant he was in the ideal position to rig the game in his favor. In the case of the hot lotto, what Tipton managed to do was sneak in some additional lines of computer code into the system, causing the machine to pick a predetermined combination of numbers on a particular day, then delete itself afterwards. It was a clever scheme, but once investigators had Tipton in their sights, they were able to find several pieces of evidence pointing toward him being the culprit. Tipton was arrested and convicted on two counts of fraud on July twentieth, two 2015. But even after that, suspicions still swirled around him and just what he'd been up to throughout his career. Everyone noticed that Tipton lived in a lavish 4,800-square-foot, $540,000 home in the cornfields of Iowa, despite only making about $100,000 per year for his annual salary. The Iowa district attorney who prosecuted Tipton also thought it was suspicious how Tipton's attorneys, were so keen to push for a swift trial. The DA began to wonder if Tipton might be covering for someone else out there holding a winning ticket. Then, not long after, a man from Tipton's hometown of LaGrange, Texas, phoned the DA's office with a tip. Were they aware that Eddie Tipton's brother won the lottery a decade earlier? It turned out that Eddie Tipton had been rigging the lottery in favor of his friends and family since at least 2005. In that year, Tipton's brother Tommy won a half-million-dollar prize in a Colorado lottery that Eddie had arranged computer security for. Then in 2007, $783,000 was paid out in a Wisconsin lottery to a corporation run by Robert Rhodes, a close friend and business associate of Eddie Tipton. Tommy Tipton, Robert Rhodes, and a handful of others were all charged in the fraud scheme. Investigators also looked into the owner of a Texas construction company who in 2011 also claimed a $1.2 million prize in the Oklahoma lottery, although authorities have refused to explain why they feel this case may be connected. Over the years and around the world, there have been numerous such stories involving rigged lotteries. In 1999, a nationwide scandal rocked Italy when it was revealed that its national lottery was rigged by bribing the blindfolded children who drew the winning numbers. Children were encouraged to peek from beneath loosened blindfolds to pick out specific balls that were coated with a shiny varnish. Sometimes the balls were superheated with a torch to make them easily identifiable by touch. One time this scheme went out of control when a ball was overheated and one of the children burned his hand. In 1999, widespread fraud was found to be at the center of an abnormally high number of lottery wins across Ontario, Canada. Four lottery officials were found complicit in a massive fraud scheme and forced to pay thousands of dollars in restitution. They were involved in a massive racket that spread out across numerous lottery retailers and their families who were falsely claiming the prize money for themselves. And yet not everyone who has ever won big in the lottery multiple times can be justly accused of cheating. In fact, there have been several people who managed to win simply by being smarter than everyone else. There's a woman named Joan Ginther who managed to win the Texas Lottery at least four times in ten years. When you hear that, you immediately think she must be incredibly lucky. That is until you also learn she has a Ph.D. in statistics from Stanford, and she purchased thousands of lottery tickets from a single store in rural Texas. This isn't to say Miss Ginther in any way cheated, but it's very likely she used her knowledge to increase her odds of winning and by determining how much she needed to play in order to score big. Similar strategies have been used by other highly intelligent people over the years. A man named Richard Lustick managed to win seven times, totaling more than a million dollars in prizes between 1993 and 2010. He went on to write a best-selling book titled, Learn How to Increase Your Chances of Winning the Lottery. Lustick didn't have any magic ability to see the future, Rather, he was able to calculate the large number of lottery tickets he'd need to purchase in specific lotteries and balance that out against the potential payout in each instance, coming out ahead multiple times. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. But Lustig's seven wins were dwarfed by a Romanian-Australian economist named Stefan Mandel, who managed to do the seemingly impossible and win the lottery 14 times between the 1960s through the 1990s. During the 1960s, Mandel was living under Soviet rule behind the Iron Curtain, where he had to support his wife and two children on a salary equivalent to $88 a month. Back then, during the Cold War, people struggling to eke out a meager existence often either had to turn to criminal activity or flee to the West to survive. But Mandel was also a talented mathematician, and he came up with a third alternative, an algorithm that practically guaranteed him a lottery win. Mandel realized early on that someone with a good head for numbers could apply that knowledge toward determining which lotteries would prove to be the best bets. He realized that any time a jackpot grew three times larger than the total potential number of winning combinations, that this meant his odds of winning dramatically increased. So, for example, if you have a lottery where you have to choose six numbers from a possible 40... That means there are 3,838,380 possible winning combinations. So Mandel would wait until the pot rose to three times that number, or roughly $11.5 million. His reasoning was simple. If a standard lottery ticket could be purchased for $1, it made mathematical sense to purchase every possible number combination, and you were practically guaranteed double the money you spent on tickets. But in order for this plan to pay off, Mandel needed the capital to get started. He went around and enlisted a group of investors who each contributed a few hundred to a few thousand dollars each for their shot at a big payday. Afterwards, Mandel painstakingly wrote out millions of tickets containing every possible winning combination. Then all he had to do was turn them in, collect the prize money, and distribute the winnings among himself and his backers. The first time he did this was with a lottery in his native Romania. By the time all was said and done, Mandel personally raked in a little over $19,000. Enough money to bribe government officials to let him escape the country and start over in the West. After that, he continued repeating this scheme in the UK and Australia throughout the 1970s and 80s. In general, most of Mandel's payouts weren't particularly large once he paid back his investors. For example, in 1987, after winning a jackpot worth $1.3 million, after paying everyone back, Mandel was left with only $97,000 for himself. It was one particular technological development in the 1980s that managed to greatly simplify and streamline his process, a personal computer. Prior to the 1980s, Mandel had been forced to write out each of the number combinations by hand. One small error could throw off his entire system. But now, with computers, he could let the machines do the work and print them out for him. After settling in Australia throughout the 1980s, Mandel managed to win the lottery 12 more times, scoring more than $400,000 for himself. Eventually, Australian lottery officials caught on to what he was doing, and because he wasn't technically doing anything wrong, they couldn't prevent him from playing. But instead, they changed the laws to prevent any future manipulations of the system. But Mandel still had one more big score in his future. And this would turn out to be his biggest of all. That was in 1992 when he decided to apply his mathematical formula to the Virginia State Lottery, which had grown to a jackpot of more than $27 million. Mandel reached out to an associate in Virginia who systematically went around to more than 100 grocery and convenience stores purchasing thousands of lottery tickets that contained every single potential winning combination of numbers. Although many retailers balked at having to print all these tickets out, there was nothing technically illegal about it. So they were forced to print the tickets. Then on February 16, 1992, Mandel hit the jackpot. The massive payout, as well as the large number of tickets purchased, caught the attention of government officials. The CIA, FBI, and IRS all investigated Stefan Mandel and his cohorts, but eventually came to the conclusion that they had played the game fairly according to the rules and won. In the end, Mandel raked in more than $15 million minus the $5 million in expenses he paid out to bring his plan to fruition. But if you're hoping to replicate Stefan Mandel's plan, you're out of luck. U.S. lotto officials changed the rules following the revelation of Mandel's scheme. Individuals are no longer allowed to print their own lottery tickets at home, nor are they allowed to purchase lotto tickets in bulk by the thousands. None of that matters much to Stefan Mandel, though went on to retire comfortably to a small tropical island off the coast of Australia. Stefan Mandel isn't the only person in history with a knack for mathematics who managed to crack the code on winning the lottery. In the early 2000s, a seemingly average guy from Michigan named Gerald Selby managed to do just that. Back in 1966, Selby worked for Kellogg's in Battle Creek, Michigan in their packaging division. As a materials analyst, it was his job to figure out better ways to preserve the shelf life of his company's cereals. It was boring, tedious work, and Selby liked to do whatever he could to spice up his day. He always had a head for numbers, and he especially loved number puzzles. Part of his job was to weigh and compare moisture levels of competitors' brands to see how they stacked up for freshness against Kellogg's. As I mentioned, it wasn't very interesting work, but Selby managed to keep himself interested when he noticed a string of numbers that ran along the bottoms of all General Mills cereal boxes that, to a layman, appeared unintelligible. That is, until Selby deciphered what they actually meant and realized these numbers could be used to track the cereal back to the date and place each box was manufactured. Selby was personally thrilled with himself for cracking the competitor's code. He tried explaining how this could potentially give Kellogg's a competitive advantage, but his co-workers were less impressed. As the years went by, Selby earned a number of degrees in mathematics and business, including a master's degree in mathematics from Western Michigan University, as well as an MBA. Once Selby went with his family to a used book sale and he bought himself a stack of college mathematics textbooks. When his daughter asked him what he wanted them for, he told her it was to keep himself sharp. For 15 years, Gerald Selby owned and ran a small convenience store in the tiny town of Everett, Michigan, simply called The Corner Store. Selby had a lottery machine installed in his store, although he never played himself because he knew how terrible the odds were. Finally, he and his wife retired and sold the store. He'd still stop by most mornings, though, and chat with the new owners, maybe grab a cup of coffee in the day's newspaper. It was during one of those visits in 2003 when Selby spotted a brochure for a new lottery game called Windfall. Selby was probably one of the few people to actually read the brochure, but when he did, he knew he'd stumbled across a flaw in the system. In Windfall, you pick six numbers, 1 through 49. Six correct guesses guaranteed you a jackpot of at least $2 million, and often higher. Winning guesses of two, three, four, or five numbers would win lesser prizes. What caught Jerry's attention, though, was a clause in the rules for something referred to as a roll-down. What that meant was that if no one won the big jackpot, after it grew to above $5 million, they would begin to dole out prizes to the lower tiers of winners. This is when Jerry's head for math clicked in. Normally, if you correctly guessed three out of six numbers, you had a 1 in 54 chance of winning, which meant you won $5. Likewise, there was a 1 in 1,500 chance of winning a $100 jackpot for correctly picking four numbers. But Jerry realized during the roll-down periods, which occurred roughly every six weeks, the amount of each cash prize jumped exponentially. Instead of winning $5 for picking three numbers, you could now win $50. And instead of winning $100 for four correct picks, you could now win $1,000. Since each ticket only cost $1 each, the math now worked out so that a large enough bet was now also a comparatively safe bet with the odds in the player's favor. After that, Jerry Selby began to put a plan into motion in order to win big. He knew initially who would have to hide this from his wife, Whom he was sure would disapprove. The first time he attempted his plan during one of the windfall weeks, Jerry drove to a convenience store 47 miles away and plunked down $2,200 on windfall tickets. His plan worked and he did win, sort of, but it was only $2,150, which left him $50 in the red. Other winners might have given up right then, but Jerry was convinced that his math was solid. The main problem he calculated was that he hadn't bet enough to turn the laws of probability in his favor. The next time he attempted it, he purchased $3,400 in windfall tickets. This time he won $6,300, a 46% profit margin. Now Jerry was absolutely convinced his plan was solid. The next time a roll-down occurred, he bet even more money. This time he purchased $8,000 in windfall tickets and won $15,700 a 49% return. After that, Jerry decided to let his wife Marge in on the scheme. He took her camping at a state park in Alabama, and it was there sitting next to a crackling fire that he described to her his secret system to beat the lottery. From there, the couple began working together to buy more and more windfall tickets. It was long, tedious work. They began collecting large plastic tubs full of stacks of lottery tickets they meticulously kept records of and rubber-banded together. Luckily, Jerry knew most of the convenience store managers around the area, which helped when he and Marge had to stand there for hours going from store to store asking them to patiently print out thousands of lottery tickets. Within six months, they had enlisted the aid of their six children to get in on the scheme. On their first go as a group, they bet $18,000, only to lose most of it when one lucky soul matched all six numbers. But Jerry convinced them this was only a minor setback. The math didn't lie. Pretty soon, the gravy train picked up steam and they all began winning again. Jerry set up a corporation and gave it an intentionally boring name, GS Investment Strategies LLC. He began selling shares at $500 a pop to a few friends and family members from around town. This included a Michigan State Trooper, a parole officer, a bank vice president, and even Jerry's personal accountant. By the spring of 2005, the investment group's winnings had grown exponentially, what started as $40,000 in profits doubled, then doubled again to $160,000. For the most part, the Selby's refused to live extravagantly. Marge socked the lion's share of their winnings away in their savings. Jerry bought a new truck and a camping trailer to go with it. He also began purchasing coins from the U.S. Mint to hedge against inflation. Then in May 2005, Michigan abruptly shut down Windfall, citing, ironically enough, low sales. When that happened, Jerry Selby was furious that his money train had derailed. But then another one of the investment group's players alerted him to a similar game in Massachusetts called Cash Windfall. The rules and odds were similar, although each ticket cost $2 to play instead of $1. Jerry did some new calculations and decided the plan might still work. But it would also mean he would have to drive all the way to Massachusetts a state where he had no connections, in order to purchase the tickets in person. So in 2005, Jerry hopped in his truck and made the 12-hour drive to the East Coast. What he didn't know was that he already had some competition in town. It turned out that a group of Massachusetts Institute of Technology students led by a young man named James Harvey had already come to the same mathematical conclusions that Jerry had. After analyzing numerous lottery games, Harvey had figured out the same thing Jerry did about cash windfall. That during roll-down weeks, your $2 bet was worth more than $2. Harvey recruited around 50 people into his own investment corporation he called Random Strategies LLC. Their average bet was about $600,000 per roll-down week. Because of the large number of tickets they were printing, the Massachusetts Lottery Commission quickly became aware of this group of college students playing the lottery. But at the same time, they also determined they weren't technically doing anything illegal. Meanwhile, Jerry Selby showed up in a Sunderland, Massachusetts convenience store and made a proposal to the owner. He'd allow the man a stake in his investment group if he'd allow him to purchase $100,000 in windfall tickets. But even that store by itself couldn't handle the bulk ticket printing, so Jerry and Marge soon also enlisted the owners of a diner in South Deerfield that also had a lottery machine. For more than 12 hours, the retired couple worked the two machines as they spit out lottery ticket after lottery ticket. The first time Jerry and Marge Selby played the Massachusetts lottery, they gambled $120,000 and netted a profit of $58,000. Over the next five years, Jerry and Marge would return to the state and play cash windfall on average of six to nine times a year. A lottery compliance officer caught wind of the Selby's and investigated. Although, like the group from MIT, they determined no wrongdoing on the elderly couple's part. So Jerry and Marge just kept playing. By 2009, the Selbys had grossed more than $20 million in winning lottery tickets, with a net profit of approximately $5 million after expenses. One of their biggest payouts came toward the end of their run when they played $712,000 and won just shy of a million. On August 16, 2010, the group from MIT led by James Harvey forced a roll down in the Massachusetts windfall when they bought a massive 700,000 tickets. This was a week when Jerry and Marge did not play. The enormous purchase was noticed by the authorities who wrongly accused Jerry and Marge of rigging the lottery in their favor. This, of course, infuriated Jerry since he knew full well it wasn't he that did it. Jerry felt the group from MIT were crossing a line by forcing the roll down to happen, rather than letting it happen on its own. The group from MIT knew about Jerry and Marge as well by that point. They even sent a representative to Jerry's home in Michigan to see if the couple might be interested in joining forces for an even bigger payout. Jerry slammed the door in the young man's face. In response to what they saw as rigging the system, Massachusetts lottery technicians installed a new software script That would notify them of any such massive ticket purchase in order to alert other players of an imminent roll-down, giving everyone an even chance. Following this, a Boston Globe reporter also learned of what was happening with the cash windfall game and published a story that deeply offended Jerry. He thought it painted him to look like he was somehow scamming people out of their money when he insisted he was only playing the game by the rules. Jerry reached out to the Globe reporter in order to set the record straight. He gave a full interview explaining exactly, in detail, how he and his wife had made their money. He said that anyone could do the same thing if they put in the same time and investment. The last time Jerry and Marge played Cash Windfall was in January 2012. Six months later, the Massachusetts Inspector General issued an official report that only partially absolved the Selvies, the group from MIT and other high-volume bettors who had caught on to the flaw in the system. The state reported that although the large volume of tickets being purchased was technically within the rules, many of the vendors who sold the tickets were in violation because they were prohibited from profiting themselves from the games, and also by operating the lottery machines outside approved hours. But the report also did not determine any real harm was done to anyone else. In fact, over the previous seven and a half years, the cash windfall game turned out to be a cash cow for Massachusetts, pumping nearly $120 million into state coffers. Today, Jerry Selby is in his 80s, and he still likes to play the lottery sometimes. He's tried to come up with a system to beat the Powerball jackpot, but hasn't found one that works yet. He goes to the casino every now and then and likes to play Texas Hold'em. Marge goes with him, but she never bets any money. Truth is... March doesn't really like to gamble. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Rita and Tessie, and thanks to Adrian for increasing her pledge. I appreciate each and every one of you. I wanted to remind everyone, if you're interested in helping support the show by signing up for Patreon, you can get access to all sorts of goodies, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us in Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms. This makes it easier for even more people to find our show and grows our Conspirators family even more. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Check us out on social media as well. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and a Facebook page. You can even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.